The apostle Matthew writes, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Thus reads the words of the Lord. You may be seated. So we are in a month today that is called Pride Month. It's a month of Satanism. Let me give you a a verse in the scriptures that completely confronts this month. James 4, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride should never, ever mark the Christian. It should always be humility. Pride in our sin is even more abhorrent when we promote sin in a godless generation. And what we see also is this pride is in our own hearts, isn't it? We know our own hearts better than anyone else, and we know the pride that so often wells up within us. We see this no more clearly than in corporate America and your, in your workplace and, and what we see, how, what the world promotes. Likely all of us have heard in one form or another that to get ahead, you have to step on someone else's neck. You've got to put other people down to raise yourself up. Our world is dripping with pride, isn't it? And who is the father of all pride? Satan, who thought he was greater than God in heaven. Satan is alive and well, and his children are stepping out. It's interesting because Jesus knows exactly the pride that's in our heart. And in fact, John the Baptist knows the pride that's even in the religious establishment. Can you believe it? Here the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious elite of their day come and they come to evaluate John the Baptist's ministry when in fact he turns the table on them and he evaluates their ministry. It's amazing. The church is so different. Jesus showed us such a different way. Servant leadership. Remember his disciples were debating among themselves who would be the greatest. They wanted to know who was gonna be Jesus's right-hand man. When Jesus ascends to the throne of David, who would be his number one? Mark 9.35 says this, Jesus says, if anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and the servant of all. See, here's Christianity. It's countercultural. It's totally opposite. If you wish to be great in this kingdom, you must be last and you must be the servant of all. It's not a very popular sermon today that you need to strive to be last. It's very easy for some of us in races. I'm good at being last, right? Especially after my ACL surgery. But one of my favorite verses comes from John the Baptist, which is in John 3.30. He says this, he must increase, but I must decrease. What an important verse, huh? Jesus must always increase in my life, but I must always decrease in my life. That's the opposite of what our flesh wants. Our flesh wants to be great. Our flesh wants to be known. Our flesh is very prideful. But here's John the Baptist, the greatest of all those born from among women, Jesus says. And he says, I must decrease. 
I must step aside. I must lose my disciples to who? To the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. This is what needs to define the church today is humility. What a lie it is that the church is promoting pride, a vice that is his, its father is Satan himself. So what do we do when we hear this sermon? This sermon is powerful. John is preaching a very important sermon that needs to be preached today. John is striking at the very heart of religious elitism and pride. The Pharisees and Sadducees believed they were good enough, that they had earned God's favor by nature of their descent, by the fact that they were Jews. And what they're going to realize is they're in the same place as the Gentiles, for all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. So we're going to break this into three points today, very clear points. Verse seven is this. John is going to describe the children of Satan, the offspring of vipers. Point number two is he's going to explain how you, be, you're, how you become a child of Abraham, verses eight through 10. And then finally, he's going to point us to the Messiah. He's going to point us to the promised Messiah, which was his entire ministry, was to point people to Jesus Christ. And I would submit, we, like John, need to be pointers, not to ourselves, but to Jesus. We need to live to point others to Jesus because salvation is only available under the name Jesus Christ. And so if you're, aiming, if you're thinking that you're good enough, that you can stand before the Lord in your own righteousness and survive the test, let me tell you, that is wrong and you will suffer for all eternity because of it. Let's just go to Ephesians 2 real quickly. We need to lay the groundwork because Ephesians 2 is very humbling for us. My daughter, Olivia, every time we watch a movie, she loves to point out the bad guys. She'll say, that's a bad guy. That's a bad guy. And if you're in Britain, it's a baddie. You're a baddie. But you see here, we're all baddies. We're all bad guys. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 explains this, puts us all in the exact same bucket. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? That's Satan. The spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Do you think his spirit is at work today? among whom we once all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were all baddies. We all deserved God's wrath. We were all dead in our trespasses. All of us despised God. All of us were born in our iniquities. All of us born with a raised fist to God. It's an amazing thing that any of us can have hope, isn't it? We were all children of the serpent, as Genesis 3 says, offspring of Satan. And if you don't think that's true, if you think, well, I was never a child of Satan, then you don't understand the very basis of the gospel, that you once followed the prince of the power of the air, that you were once in love with this world and the flesh. So when we look at the world around us today, let's not be too judgmental in the sense of looking down our noses because we were in the same exact bucket, but by God's grace, he saved us and he pulled us out of that mess. So as we look at this passage, go back to Matthew chapter 3, looking at verse 7. We begin this section with a but, which means there's a contrast taking place, which means we have to look backwards for a quick second. Why does he say, but when? 
Well, let's just look backwards real quick. What was John preaching? John was preaching repentance. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, Matthew, in a stroke of genius, does the exact same. He repeats that phrase in Matthew 4, 17, where it says, Jesus came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I argued last week, repentance is key to the gospel. Without repentance, there is no gospel. You have to be called to repentance. The only way to the Christian path is through the gate of repentance. Bowing down and saying, I'm not God, you're God. I'm not following my way, I'm following your way. And dying to self, that is the only way to the Christian life. Now we see here this but because in verse five, we see John's, John the Baptist's ministry is catching fire. It's growing incredibly quick. Verse five, then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the regions about the Jordan were going out to him. He is gathering attention. God is blessing his ministry in the middle of the wilderness. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So people are repenting both Jews and Gentiles, all of Southern Palestine is coming to John the Baptist. John the Baptist looks different. He talks different. He's wearing camel hair. He's not wearing Gucci. John is saying something that no one wants to hear. He's preaching a sermon that by today's standards would be considered unloving. He's preaching the gospel, repentance. And if you hear the gospel preached without repentance, you are not hearing the gospel preached. But, verse 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism. So put yourself in John's shoes. Finally, the religious elite have arrived. Finally, the establishment is here. I can build my resume with them. I can be accepted. Perhaps they'll let me teach in Jerusalem at the temple. Is that John the Baptist's mindset? No, he pretty much shreds his resume immediately in front of the religious Elite. Now, this is a delegation likely from the Sanhedrin. They don't like what's happening because this is not Sanhedrin approved. This is not working according to what the temple said should be doing, but that preacher should be saying, right? He is speaking in a way that's offensive to the religious elite. I, I love when the disciples and those around Jesus say, did you know that you just offended the Pharisees? And Jesus is like, uh, yeah, of course I knew that. That's why I'm here. And I love when the Pharisees say, we know you don't care about anyone's opinion. And Jesus is like, go on, you're right. I don't. It's amazing because John the Baptist and Jesus Christ are cut from the same cloth, aren't they? They're, they're preaching the exact same sermon, repent. Repentance is so key. And you see these Jews, they don't believe they need to repent because they're Jews. They're Pharisees and they're Sadducees. They're the religious elite they think by nature of their descent, they're saved. Now, is that true? We just went through Romans. Remember, Paul labors. Let's turn there. Romans 2. Paul labors to show all of his readers that your lineage does not save you. It's amazing because many people today, especially if you go into the Bible Belt area, believe that the fact that their grandfather was a pastor will save them. And that's, that's not true. There are no grandchildren in the family of God. There's only children and so Romans 2, Paul just goes at the gutter. I mean, he just goes for it with the religious establishment, with the gospel, Romans 2, starting in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, so who's he going after? He's going after Jews. 
And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of foolish, uh, the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of the knowledge of truth, and then you teach others, do you not teach yourself? So what's the issue here? Hypocrisy. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed of some value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Circumcision was an outward sign of the fact that you were part of the people of God. And what Paul is saying is if you're circumcised, that doesn't help you if your heart is not circumcised. Verse 26, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. Here's the issue. They're not keeping God's law. They're not walking according to his statutes. Verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Verse 29, here's the whole point, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the what? The heart. By the spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. That is a true Jew. So now when you turn back to Matthew chapter three, we'll get a better understanding of what's really happening here. These Jews believe by nature of being Jewish, they are good. They are saved by their own righteous works, by their own outward appearances. They are acceptable to God. Now, who are these Pharisees and who are these Sadducees? Let's look at this. R.T. France says this, as the two main ideological groups in the Sanhedrin, both Sadducees, these Sadducees are politically dominant from whom they come from the priestly line and the temple hierarchy. So these are the religious elite. The Sadducees are the most powerful. They're the ones that have all the money. They're incredibly wealthy. They're a smaller group, but they are the main players in the Sanhedrin. And then you have the Pharisees, a self-conscious party grouping committed to rigorous observance of the law. In fact, the oral law. Remember, the Pharisees were known for building fences around fences around fences so you wouldn't break the actual law. And then you had the oral law. They represented key elements in the Jerusalem establishment. So we're talking about the religious establishment has come out to evaluate John the Baptist. And the mention of them together probably suggests a cross-party delegation. They're coming together. These two are usually not on the same side, Pharisees and Sadducees. But here they've come together as a part, cross-party de- delegation to come to evaluate John the Baptist's message. They come to examine him. Now, what's wrong with this picture? The religious elite have come to look down upon the prophet like Elijah, who is preparing the way for the Messiah. Rather than confessing their sins and repenting, they're there to judge. Now, let me tell you, it's easy to look down our noses at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when in reality, if we look into the mirror, we often act like them, don't we? I'm think, I, I think of those people that go to churches just to judge the church. You know, I don't like the church because it's full of Christians who are hypocrites. And then you ask them, well, have you ever looked in a mirror? Because you also are a hypocrite. All of us are hypocrites. None of us are completely faithful to what it is we say. In fact, if you could control your tongue, what would you be? A perfect person. 
None of us can control our tongues. And so you see these men come to evaluate, to look down upon John the Baptist. And instead of kowtowing and saying, I'm sorry, guys, I know this is an approved gathering. John the Baptist does something somewhat unexpected. He turns the tables on them. Rather than being judged, he tells them what? You stand judged. This is fascinating. This statement is a way to make enemies very quickly. He says this, verse seven, I'll read it again. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, which likely might have included Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, the Sanhedrin, the delegation sent, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. So what is he actually calling them here? Is this a flattering term? You offspring of snakes that are poisonous and that kill. What does this ring a bell of? Genesis 3, verse 15, right? The seed of the serpent, the offspring of Satan. I already read in Ephesians 2 that we were all born as children of Satan, following the prince of the power of the air. We were all dead in our trespasses. And you can't revive a dead person from the inside. A dead person can't will themselves back to life. We're going to see it takes an outward force. And these men are dead. They are children of Satan. And they are killing those who listen to them. Their teaching is poison. And this is why John the Baptist has no tolerance for these men. These men are sending people to hell. John the Baptist does not play with them. He does not try to earn their favor. He does not try to get along. He calls them what they are, children of Satan. Now we see this in the world today, don't we? Satan has come out into the open. Satan is becoming incredibly popular to where Target is now selling satanic paraphernalia. It's amazing because who would have thought three years ago we would be where we are today in our culture? Satan is alive and well. And his followers are asserting themselves in every sphere of life. And we as children of God need to stand firm and hold the line. And John the Baptist is a great example of this. What happened to John? Did he end up with a 401k and a nice retirement home? No, he was beheaded. And his head was served literally on a silver platter to Herodias. John the Baptist died for what he believed. And some of us in this room may die for what we believe. We don't know what God has for us, but the reality is this persecution is coming and it's rising up right now. And the church needs to stand firm and call people to repentance. That word is so important because John preached it and Jesus preached it and Peter preached it and John the apostle and Paul, they all preached repentance. They never preached pride. They preached humility. False teachers are very dangerous. I think we don't understand how dangerous false teachers truly are. False teachers are not to be played with. They're not to be patronized. False teachers are be, to be kicked out of the church, to be expelled from among us. This is why we call out wolves. If someone is truly a wolf, they need to be called out and removed before they kill and devour the sheep. False teachers are here today and they are growing. And we as children of God must stand firm against children of Satan always. There's really only two sides, isn't there? There's light and darkness. There's good and evil. Now turn back to Ephesians 2, if you will. I've got good news. <laughs> this is a hard sermon, trust me. John the Baptist is not pulling any punches. John the Baptist is going right after sin. In Ephesians 2, there's an amazing contrast here. Starting in verse 4. But God, 
two of the best words in your Bible. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So who made us alive? God, God alone. You didn't will it. You were dead in your trespasses. God brought you back to life. By grace, you've been saved. Verse six, and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Verse seven, so that in the coming ages, he might show immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Well, what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. What is mercy? Not getting what you deserve. Verse eight, for by grace, you have been saved through faith and not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. By God's grace, we were saved from being children of Satan and he brought us back to life. Not as a result of works, verse nine, you did nothing to earn it so that no one may boast. Pride, right? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are his workmanship, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So even your good works are not your good works. They were prepared by God so that you could walk in them. Well, it sounds like God gets all the glory. He does. You get nothing. You get no glory. God shares his glory with you, but you have no glory for yourself. All you deserve is hell. But Jesus attributes his good works and his righteousness. He accredited to our account and we get heaven. If you, if, if, if you don't know that, this is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to repent of your sins and turn to Christ. And that's exactly what we see here. How do you become a child of Abraham? Look to verses 8 through 10. So Matthew 3, verses 8 to 10. So after that, you know, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Why are you here? Are you here to confess? Are you here to repent? Why were they there? They weren't there to confess. They were there to judge and to keep John from speaking what they didn't want him to say. And then he says this. This is the command that John the Baptist gives the religious elite. He says, bear fruit in keeping with what? Repentance. There's that word again. He comes preaching repentance to turn away from your sins, to change your thoughts about sin, to turn to God, to agree with God and his word. He tells them it's the day to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, literally, this word means fruit that's worthy of repentance, fruit that's in line with God's word. And again, you may read the scriptures and say, I don't like that. And that's your flesh, right? Our flesh hates God's word. But when you read God's word and you disagree with it and you say, I'm not going to live that way, what's speaking? It's the flesh. It's that part of you that you need to put to death daily as it raises its fist to God. And there's a teaching that is called cheap grace, which is you can pray a prayer and live like the devil and be saved. Is that what the Bible says? No, it says repent and believe. They all preach repentance. You can't enter into the narrow gate unless you repent. You know, it's interesting because some people say, well, there's a formulaic prayer that if I get you to pray it, you're saved forever. Is that what the Bible says? There's not once given a formulaic prayer that if you can just get people to utter, now they're saved. It all starts with what? Repentance, dying daily, walking on the path. Revelation says to those who what? Persevere. 
to those who continue to the end, they will receive the crown of life. They will receive white garments. This is such a false teaching in the church that you can be saved and live like the devil. John even says that, 1 John 3. If you live like the child of the devil, it's because you are a child of the devil. Christians do not continue sinning. Not a popular sermon today, but here John the Baptist is saying, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's how you stay on the road. He says this too, as he's looking right at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you gotta imagine the people are just like eating their popcorn at this point. (laughs) And as he's speaking directly to the Pharisees, he says, oh, I know what you're gonna say. Look at verse nine. Don't presume to say to yourselves, don't think to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. Wouldn't that be the response? The Jews are looking at him saying, yeah, we understand why Gentiles are here. Of course, they need to be baptized in repentance, but us Jews are here to observe because we're good. See, this is the thing is the Jews thought just by bloodlines, they were saved. No one is saved by bloodlines other than by Christ's blood. And he says, I know what you're going to say. That's just because by nature, you're a Jew, you're good. And he says this, this is fascinating. He says, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Is that possible? Is that hyperbole? Can God really create anything out of stones? Well, could God make a human out of dirt? Could God make a woman out of a rib? Could God make children of God out of stones? Well, you know, in Ezekiel, it says that we have what? Stony hearts. What does God do with a stony heart? It says he takes out, he removes the stony heart and he puts in a heart of flesh. That's called regeneration. And now you have a heart that's able to respond to God's word, able to repent. So yes, God can make children of Abraham out of stones because all of us have a heart surgery when we're saved. We receive new hearts. This is amazing because you can imagine the fury that the Pharisees and the Sadducees would have at this point. We came to give you our approval, but here you are calling us children of Satan. He's not pulling any punches. It's amazing because what he's saying is everything that you represent is demonic. There's no halfway point here. And again, we need to be very clear as Christians about the gospel. And if there's a teacher preaching false gospels, they need to be called out by name. Well, that's unloving. Well, then I guess Jesus was unloving. I guess Paul was unloving. I guess Peter was unloving. You see, constantly they are calling out people. And especially Paul. He'll tell you, have nothing to do with them. Have nothing. Don't even play with a false teacher. And in verse 10, he goes on. And this is where it gets very dramatic. After calling them children of Satan after saying that they are fleeing from the wrath, that who, called you, who, came, who told you to flee from the wrath that's coming to you? He says, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. This is a present tense verb. This means it's imminent. That judgment is coming right now. The king is right behind me. He's preparing the way. He's clearing the way as a herald of heaven saying, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's about to point everyone to Jesus. And what he's saying here is right now, judgment is coming to the house of Israel. Judgment is coming to your household. And this applies to us today because is judgment imminent? Now, how much time do you have left on your clock? Do you have two days left on your clock? Do you have 10 years left on your clock? Do you have 50 years? 
If all of us had a countdown timer over our heads that said when we will draw our last breath, would we live a little differently? It's interesting because right now, judgment is eminent. There's a false teaching that needs to be confronted here and now. There is no second chance after death. It says, it is appointed that every man die once and then comes the judgment. If you die without accepting Christ, you will be forever separated from him. This is what he's saying, is the judgment is already imminent. Israel is already being judged. The ax is already at the root. Now this is shocking to them. They can't believe what they're hearing. And he says that if you do not bear good fruit, you will be cut down. He says, and thrown into the fire. Now, is, is John having a bad day? Is this just, he had a bad burrito before he preached and he's just angry? Or is this replicated in Jesus' preaching as well? Because Jesus says you will all be judged by your works. It's interesting because we become so afraid of talking about works in the church, but the reality is we will be judged by works. And if you're judged by your own works, you will fail every single time. But if you're judged by his works, Jesus' works, you will be perfect as he is perfect and you will receive the crown of glory. It's amazing because our works will be judged. Even as believers, we'll stand before the bema seat of Christ and all of our works will be judged as through the fire. And any works you've done in your own power will what? They'll burn up. Any works you've done in dependence on the Holy Spirit, they will survive the fire and you'll be rewarded. So all of our works will be judged. Matthew 16, 27, if you want to write that down, talks about that. But you see this throughout those scriptures. Even our words, even the careless words we say from our mouth will be judged. Now you're thinking, well, at least my thoughts are safe. <laughs> no, even your thoughts will be judged. Well, what do I do? We'll take every thought captive, right, to the cross. And when you realize the holiness and the immaculate splendor of God's judgments, the fact that no one could measure up to God's judgments, that brings you to a state of humility where your pride is broken and you come to the cross with open hands as a beggar saying, I need what? Salvation. That's what John is trying to get us to see is that we all are in desperate need of salvation and where do we find the gospel? Where do we find that word that breaks our heart? And it's right here in the scriptures. I believe it was Charles Spurgeon who once said, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. When you hear God's word preached, pray that your heart would melt rather than harden. What happened to Pharaoh when he heard Moses? His heart was what? Hardened. What happens to Paul, Saul at the time when he's confronted by Jesus Christ? On the road to Damascus, his heart is melted. And I pray that your heart is melted when you hear the gospel preached. So now as we come to our third point here, we see the promised Messiah. So this is the whole point of John's ministry is to point to the Messiah. He says this in verses 11 and 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. It goes on to say, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So he's talking to the Jews and the Gentiles, and he's saying the day of reaping is coming. And if you want to be a child of Abraham, you must believe in the one that I'm pointing to. 
Now, if you will, turn to Galatians chapter three. This is another important teaching from Paul on how it is that you were saved. How do we become children of Abraham? How do we become children of God? Paul is dealing with a very important issue in Galatians. He's dealing with, again, kind of pharisaical teachings, what we call Judaizers that are trying to get Christians back under the law, trying to circumcise. And he says, if you add anything to the gospel, it becomes a non-gospel. If it's a gospel of works, it can't save you. He says, Galatians, in Galatians 3, verses 15 through 29, a larger section, but a very important section. Starting in verse 15, Paul says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to who? Abraham and to his offspring. Now we're going to get into some cool apostolic exegesis. Listen to this. He starts to break down the words. It does not say, and to offsprings, in reference to Genesis 12. He says, referring to many, but referring to one. It's in the singular, offspring. And to your offspring, who is what? Christ. It's amazing because he's saying when when we're talking about Genesis 12 and we're talking about the promised seed of the Old Testament, it's not many, it's one. It's Christ Jesus. It's amazing because this is what the Jews had banked on, that they were the offspring of Abraham, but they were rejecting the true son of God. And then look down at verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given or the law that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everyone under everything under sin so that the promise of by faith in Jesus Christ might be to those who believe. So what did the scriptures do? They imprisoned you under sin, meaning that when you read the scriptures, you realized you couldn't measure up to God's holy standard. As you look at the 10 commandments, you say, I can't even keep those much less the 613 other laws, right? The laws of the Old Testament, no one can keep those. So they imprison us under sin, recognizing that when you read the scriptures, you realize, I can't. And then verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. And then verse 24, so then the law was a guardian, a handmaiden until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So how do you receive sonship? Remember, you're in the son. That's why it's referred to as specifically sonship. How do you receive that? Well, you have to be in Christ, the seed of Abraham. The only way you can be of the offspring of Abraham is to be in Jesus Christ. Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, there's those words, have put on Christ. Therefore, in verse 28, very important verse, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So who are Abraham's true offspring? Those who are in Christ. And this is what the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not understand. As they thought by bloodlines they were children of Abraham, when really they are only children of faith or children of Abraham. We saw that in Romans 2 earlier. So coming to this last point, the promised Messiah, the reaping is coming. We see multiple parables. We see multiple prophecies about angels being sent into the world and reaping the entire harvest of the earth. 
and the wheat and the tares are brought in and then they are separated. The wheat is brought into the barn and the chaff is burned outside. So we see the wheat reaping is coming again, verse 11 and 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor, gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. So what do we do with this? Remember, John the Baptist came to preach what? Repentance. Now, is repentance enough to save alone? So this is the interesting thing, because if it was, then in Acts 19, verses 1 through 7, remember the disciples of John the Baptist? They're confronted, and they say, did you ever hear about Jesus? No, we're disciples of John. Well, then you need to be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit, right? So they missed Jesus. So repentance is not enough to save apart from belief in Jesus Christ. That's why we say repent and believe, right? You have to bow and say, I'm not God, I'm not Lord, I'm not good, that I'm a baddie, that I'm a bad guy, and that I need Jesus who is the only good one. He's the only one that can save. And here again, John the Baptist couldn't save anyone. Did John the Baptist die on a cross for your sins? John the Baptist's message only prepared the way. It did not save. Only Jesus saves. And so he says, the one who comes after me is mightier than me because he can actually save you. See, no pastor can save you. No denomination can save you. Only Jesus can save you. It's an amazing thing because when you compare Jesus with anyone behind today's pulpits, who's greater? Jesus. Whose word is more important? Jesus' word. This is why if a pastor preaches anything but the word of God, they are not helping you. In fact, they're leading you astray because only God's word can save. The Holy Spirit honors his word and his word never returns back void as the Gideons taught us. So we see this in verses 11 through 12. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after is mightier, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He says, I'm not even on the level of a slave. I'm under the level of a slave. Then he says this, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What is he referring to here? This is an amazing thing because he talks about the threshing floor He talks about the fact that we will all be cast up. We will all be tested by God. And we see that no one is greater. No one is mightier than Jesus. And he is the one who is coming with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, when does that happen? In Acts chapter two, right? We see the Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost and he permanently indwells his church. And we see there's a separation. There's an amazing thing that happens. At that time, the new covenant is initiated in the sense of a greater covenant is here. The Holy Spirit, the sign of the new covenant, the seal of the new covenant is here. But what does the fire mean? Some say this is a purifying fire, that the Holy Spirit purifies us, which is true. But you see here that everyone will be tested by what? Fire. When Jesus comes again, especially the second time, he comes to judge the world. And we will all be judged as through the fire. For believers, will stand before the Bema Seat judgment and our works will be tested. And we see for the wicked dead, they'll stand before the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. The books will be opened and anyone whose name is not found in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into hell, into the lake of fire. So we see here, Jesus is coming and he came the first time and he died for our sins. And when he comes the second time, we will all be judged by fire. 
So when we look at this winnowing fork, just the picture, is this where we'll end, is what is the picture here? What's the word picture that's being given? One commentator says this, In Palestine, as in many other parts of the ancient world, farmers made a threshing floor by picking out a slight depression in the ground, so usually a hole in the ground, or digging one if necessarily, usually on a hill where breezes could be brought. So when you think about, remember Gideon, and he's in a threshing floor, he's, he's, he's down in a hole when he's visited, visited by the angel. The soil would then be wetted and packed down until it was very hard. And around the perimeter of the floor, which was perhaps 30 or 40 feet in diameter, rocks would be stacked to keep the grain in place. So a big hole surrounded by rocks. After the stalks of the grain were placed onto the floor, an ox or a team of oxen would drag heavy pieces of wood around over the grain. So they would break up all the grain that was in that hole, separating the wheat kernels from the chaff or straw. Then the farmer would take a winnowing fork and throw a pile of grain into the air. So here's what John is painting a picture of, is every human that has ever existed will be taken to the threshing floor and thrown up. They will be tested. You will be tested by God as through the fire. The wind would blow the chaff away while the kernels fell to the ground being heavier. Eventually nothing would be left but the good and useful wheat. So what John is saying to these Pharisees and Sadducees is that you will be tested by the one who's coming after me. He will come and he will evaluate your works. He will separate the wheat from the tares. Well, how do you tell wheat from tares? Well, it says that their works will be tested. Remember, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, how will you know a good tree? By its what? Fruit. And so isn't it important that we evaluate our lives in light of obedience? None of us are saved by good works. We are saved unto good works. We see this throughout Jesus' teachings. And so if your life looks like the devil, today is the day to repent of that and to start walking in a way that is worthy of the gospel, as Paul says in Romans. We need to walk worthy of the gospel. And so when we think about the reaping and we think about the judgment, is are you ready for the judge to return? You know, this is a hard sermon to preach, and this is hard to hear, because if you are not in Christ, this is terrifying, and it should be. It should get you to the place where you repent of your sins, and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and receive salvation. When I recognized my need for Christ, my world was shattered. God brought me down to absolutely nothing until I finally looked on Jesus and said, I believe he's Lord, and I'm willing to follow him. I pray you've done that. And as John the Baptist preaches, again, his main point is this, to point people to Jesus Christ, not to himself. And if someone were to ask you, what is your life about? If your children, if I were to go to your children or your grandchildren or your friends or your family, and I ask them, what is this person's life all about? What do they point to on a regular basis? What would they say about you? Would they say, oh, well, they really love football. They're really obsessed with money. They're focused on their own fame and their own reputation. When you look at, think of your favorite actors, when you think of your, the most influential people in the world, if you ask them, what is, the, what is their life all about? We could all say, oh, it's very clear that their life is about dot, dot, dot. But when you look at your life, what is your life about? If I were to ask someone else, what is this person pointing to on a regular basis? What would they say? It's fascinating because a judgment that God gives people is oftentimes success. He'll give you exactly what you always wanted as a judgment to harden your heart and to make you prideful. God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. 
So what is your life about? And really, it should be John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Every day living that Christ may increase in our lives and that we may decrease in our lives. And that when someone asks you, well, what was their life about when they're at your funeral and they're talking about your life, they say, that person loved Jesus. They talked about Jesus all the time. Their hope was in Jesus. Every time I talked to them, somehow they would fit Jesus into the conversation. Is that what our lives are about? Because that's what John's life was about, pointing others to Jesus. So just to recap here, point number one is this, is we were all born children of Satan. When we go through our testimonies and we talk about our lives, all of our lives are tainted by sin. You know, sometimes it's ridiculous to hear testimonies where people are bragging about their sin. When we talk about our sin, we should be broken over it, sorrowful over it. All of us were following the prince of the power of the air. All of us were children of wrath, sons of destruction. But by God's grace, he brought us out of that. He chose us out of that. He made our stone hearts into fleshy hearts. And that's where we become children of Abraham by being found in Christ Jesus. And his works become our works. And our works ended up being paid for on the cross. And so we point to Christ because the, re- the reaping is coming. And I pray you're ready for it. Augustine says this of the Jews. The Jews looked upon a serpent to be freed from serpents. Remember the bronze serpent? And we look upon the death of Christ to be delivered from death. Let's pray. So Father God, we look at this passage and we know that your wrath is a very serious thing and you've called us to repentance. So Father, I pray that we would repent daily, that we would confess our sins daily and keep short accounts with you. Lord, that we would look to your son Jesus and his righteousness And Father, I pray if there are any stone hearts in here that you would break them and make them into hearts of flesh that that respond to the gospel call. Father, today is the day of salvation. And may we as your children stand against the pride of this world. May we reject Satan and his children and call them to repentance. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.